We are in a series, Who is Jesus? And today we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus is our propitiation. The fact that Jesus completely satisfied God's wrath, his unmitigated wrath against our sin, opening the door for us to experience mercy from God, and out of that being motivated to live a life that will honor the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross to save all of those who would believe. As we narrow our focus this morning and collect our thoughts and focus on our topic, I just want to share some thoughts with you that others have written about propitiation. If we cannot claim to live sinless lives, then the only thing that can keep us from despairing before a holy God is that we have an advocate in heaven, and he pleads our case, not on the basis of our perfection, but of his propitiation. Jesus pleading our case before the Father as our advocate because of and out of the sacrifice that he made on the cross when he took our sins on his body and experienced God's wrath, allowing God's justice to be satisfied, allowing us to have access to the Father and to know him and also understand and experience his mercy. One theologian and pastor put it this way. He said, when I asked or were I asked, rather, to focus the New Testament message in three words. If I had to distill it to three words, my proposal would be adoption through propitiation. And I do not expect ever to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. Adoption through propitiation. That we are adopted into the family of God. That we are joint heirs with Jesus because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in that he completely satisfied God's wrath against my sin. I agree with that. Adoption through propitiation. You know, the real horror of being outside of Christ, not knowing him, not trusting in him for salvation from sins, is that there is no shelter from the wrath of God. That is the position and the place where everyone who hasn't believed yet finds themselves. And the reassuring aspect of that is that those who have believed are sheltered from God's wrath once and for all because of Jesus. It's important to remember in this discussion that Jesus did not die to just give us peace and a purpose in life. He died to save us from the wrath of God. He died to reconcile us to a holy God who was alienated from us because of our sin. He died to ransom us from the penalty of sin, the punishment of everlasting destruction shut out from the presence of the Lord. He died that we, the objects of God's wrath, should become by grace heirs of God and co-heirs with him. I'm going to talk to you about this a little more later in our study, but this is an important aspect that's mentioned in this quote that we don't want to lose in our belief system and we don't want to lose in our presentation of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross because we are sinners, and that has to be talked about. That has to be discussed. In fact, that has to be admitted and agreed to before anyone can receive and understand and experience salvation. Otherwise, we cheapen the sacrifice of Jesus, and we certainly do not appreciate it, nor do we honor it in the way it is due. 
One last quote. I believe a word that forcefully captures the essence of Jesus' work of propitiation is the word exhausted. Jesus exhausted the wrath of God. It was not merely deflected and prevented from reaching us. It was exhausted. Jesus bore the full, unmitigated brunt of it. God's wrath against sin was unleashed in all its fury on his beloved son. He held nothing back. So it wasn't that this wrath was just somehow prevented from reaching us and that there's some threat of it coming back in the future. No, there is no threat of it coming back in the future against anyone who has believed. Jesus completely exhausted it. It will never return. It can never be executed against those who are God's children. All of that because of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, his death on the cross for our sins. Well, let's get into our study. I want to talk to you about defining propitiation and just what it means. It comes from a Latin term meaning favorable or gracious, kind, or to render favorable. This Latin form was used to translate the Greek word hilasterion, which is found 22 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This word was used in the Septuagint to translate the Hebrew term covering or mercy seat which was the lid, of course, of the Ark of the Covenant, where the sacrificial blood was placed for the atonement of the sins of the people. We find this English word propitiation four times in the American Standard Version of the New Testament. And so I want to cite those verses. I'll make some comments about what we learn about propitiation from these four verses as we continue in our study. But in Romans chapter 3, we have these words, whom God, speaking of Jesus, set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to show his righteousness because of the passing over of the sins done aforetime in the forbearance of God. Notice here what we learn. The first thing we learn in Romans 3 verse 25 is that this whole thing of Jesus coming and dying, bearing our sins, exhausting God's wrath, all of that was God's plan. Every bit of it was God's plan. He set it forth. He set Jesus forth to be our propitiation, to exhaust his wrath. It's a wonderful illustration of God's love. God loved us so much that he provided Jesus as a way to rescue us from himself. Because God is a just God, we believe in his justice. We've talked about that some already in our former study as we looked at who is God. But because he is justice, the only way for that to be fulfilled and for his wrath to be exhausted is if the price and the penalty for sin was paid. Because God's justice demands that. God's justice demands that a price be paid for sin. Jesus paid that price, and he exhausted the wrath of God on the cross. And God loved us so much that he set forth that plan so that we could be rescued from his wrath. That's how much he loved us. And he was willing to bear all the cost. He was willing for his son to suffer all the shame and all the ridicule and all the pain physically and spiritually and emotionally and mentally that it took to accomplish our salvation and propitiation on the cross. The second occurrence of this term we find in Hebrews chapter 2. Wherefore, it behooved him in all things to be made like unto his brethren, 
that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Don't miss the things that we learn about Jesus in this text that should help form our belief system about who is Jesus. Some of these things we'll talk about in future studies. But notice that he was made like unto his brethren. In order for propitiation to take place and in order for a sacrifice to be made on the cross where someone literally shed their blood, that individual had to be human. We know he wasn't just any human. He was the God-man, but don't miss the fact he became human. There are some people today who don't believe that, who won't teach that Jesus literally was a man. But yes, he was a man, although more than a man, he certainly was human. It had to happen in order for propitiation to take place. There's no other way for this to happen outside of that God-man being coming to this earth and dying on the cross for sins. He became the merciful and faithful high priest, and he made propitiation for what? I don't want this to escape us. For the sins of the people. Say it with me. For the sins of the people. You say, why are you having us say that? You can't have an authentic gospel conversation without talking about sin. That's why I'm saying that. This truth is escaping the church today. The church doesn't want to talk about this. In fact, the church is shy to even call certain things sin, which are clearly spelled out in Scripture as being sin. We can't do that. We have to find ourselves in a place, consistently in a place of agreeing with God about sin. That is the basis of our relationship with God. In fact, it's the basis of the beginning of our relationship with God. You can't have salvation and you don't have an authentic gospel unless you are willing to deal with the sin issue and the sin theme that you find in the Word of God. It just doesn't happen any other way. In order to have salvation, you have to understand and know that you are a sinner. You have to admit that. That's the very premise upon which the gospel springs out of. There wouldn't be a gospel. There wouldn't need to be a death on the cross. There wouldn't need to be a fulfillment and an exhaustion of the wrath of God unless there was a sin problem. Don't shy away from understanding and knowing that yourself, but especially as you have gospel conversations and engage other people in our culture, you cannot compromise on this issue and on this theme when you share the gospel. You have to talk about sin. You may not want to, and you may not like it, and in fact, the people to whom you are talking may not like it, but you don't have gospel unless you talk about sin. It doesn't happen any other way. Now, we don't do that in an unkind way. We do that with grace. We do that with peace. And we certainly are not out to, in the way that we communicate, offend anyone. But the truth of the matter is the gospel is an offensive thing. It confronts people with their sin. It offers them a solution found in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation, who completely exhausted God's wrath. But it has to start with a conversation about sin. You see, what we are offering people, it goes back to one of the previous quotes, what we're offering people is not purpose in life. It's not a better life, more things, more this, more that. It's not a peaceful life. It's not even heaven. What are we offering people? We are offering people salvation from their sins. 
That is why Jesus died on the cross. All of these other things might be benefits that come along with it, but at the end of the day, the real thing that we are dealing with in the gospel is that God loved us so much that he rescued us from his own wrath by sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And if we believe in that sacrifice and we confess that while believing it in our heart, the scripture affirms that we are saved from our sins. That unlocks purpose. That brings blessing and provision and power. It certainly gives eternal life and a home in heaven. But at the heart of the gospel is salvation from sin. Don't miss that, especially when you're dealing with young children, your children and your family, the child that sits in your classroom on a Sunday or a Wednesday or a Friday or in your life group throughout the week. Don't miss it when you deal with young people. Don't avoid it, don't skirt it, and don't offer them a cheap gospel. Offer them salvation from their sins that they will want as they realize that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. That is the fullness of the gospel. First John chapter 2, by the way, all that was free. It wasn't even in the notes. First John 2, 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This speaks of the vast expanse of the propitiation for the whole world. We know that not everyone in the world is going to believe, but listen, if they were to believe, if everyone were to believe, guess what? The propitiation that Jesus accomplished on the cross is big enough to act to give everyone who believes access to eternal life and forgiveness of sin and a home in heaven with God. That's how big and that's how powerful it is. We go to 1 John chapter 4 for the fourth and final passage where we find this doctrinal term. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loved us first, and as a result of him loving us and setting us, setting all of this in motion, the result of that is propitiation, the exhaustion of his wrath against our sin. Propitiation, as we close out this section, illustrates a cooperation that is taking place. There are some people who may have misunderstood this, but it's really a cooperative effort between the Godhead to reconcile man to God. There are no conflicts here. It does not mean that God wanted to condemn while Jesus wanted to forgive. There's no conflict in propitiation. Jesus did not turn God's wrath into love. Jesus bore the full wrath of God and completely exhausted it, allowing God's justice to be vindicated and thereby providing for our reconciliation. God's love remained, and this is proven in the fact that he set apart Jesus to take our place and suffer his wrath. So it wasn't like there was a conflict in the Godhead and God was going to judge us for our sins and Jesus had an argument with him and won, and that's why we got mercy. No. God's love put this plan in place again so that he could rescue us from himself through Jesus. His wrath being exhausted, that is love. And that's how much God loved us through Jesus. I want to talk about understanding and applying propitiation in the final piece to our message today. In all of this and in understanding and in building off the last point that God loves us and that there wasn't a conflict, we see truly that God's nature 
is revealed to us in all of this. You know, there are many today who think that God exists in a perpetual angry state, just waiting to hurt or get even with them. But that's not the God of the Bible. The doctrine of propitiation teaches us that what ought to be a judgment seat has now, through the blood of Jesus, been turned into a mercy seat. And what ought to be a throne of judgment has now, for the believer, become a throne of grace. And the Bible teaches us that all of us as believers are invited to come into that throne room of grace with what? Boldness. Why? Because Jesus was our sacrifice on the cross, and through his acceptable sacrifice gave us access. When that veil was rent in two, that symbolized the access now that believers have straight to God. There's one mediator, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can go directly to God because of Jesus into that throne room to get all of the grace and the mercy that we will ever need at any time that we need it. We should have experienced God's judgment, but instead we are invited to be recipients of his mercy and understand and know and appreciate his grace. So God's nature in all of this is revealed. Don't miss that. The other thing that I want us to see is about Jesus, that it was his blood as shed on the cross that is absolutely necessary. This should form what we believe about the blood of Jesus. Now, there have been some over the course of church history who have tried to somehow minimalize or demean this aspect that Jesus shed his blood on the cross and that it wasn't really the blood that was shed that made all the difference, but it was his death and then his burial and then his resurrection. Now, we would say that his death was certainly essential to paying the full price for our sin. We would say that, surely. We would also say that uh, because of the prophetic word and because of the way things were laid out in Scripture, that his burial was an important part of the gospel message. Paul identifies it as such. We would also say that his resurrection, which we will celebrate next Sunday morning together, was truly essential because you can't have a Savior if he's dead. He can't save anyone from, from death and from sin. No way. But the blood is important. The fact that his blood was shed, all of these great truths work together in cooperation. None of them are in conflict with each other. None of them should, should minimalize the other. None of them should demean the other. They all work together. And I just want to build that apologetic for you because when we find propitiation and when we find this sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we find the essential element of the shedding of his blood. I know that's gory. I know that's not attractive. I know that people don't like to talk about that, but that is the truth, and it's part of the Christian faith. You see, the precedent for this was set in the Old Testament, wasn't it? Hebrews talks about it. According to the law, I may almost say uh, that all things are cleansed with blood, and apart from shedding of blood, there is no remission. This is fulfilled in the New Testament. Look at 1 John chapter 1. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. What cleanses us from all sin? The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We go to Romans 5. Much more then, since we have now been declared righteous. How are we declared righteous? By his blood. We will be saved through him from wrath. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, we have redemption in him. Through what? 
through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Chapter 2 and verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. Revelation chapter 1, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood. Old Testament precedent completely fulfilled and satisfied in the New Testament with a once-and-for-all sacrifice by the Lord Jesus Christ, our living Savior. It was essential that He shed His blood, that it was poured out for our sins. I want us to take our Bibles or uh, your apps or however you want to access the Scripture this morning and turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to look at a couple of passages in Hebrews And then we're going to look at a passage in Romans 12. So you'll want to keep your copy of the Scriptures handy. You'll need to read these for yourself. These will not appear on the screen this morning. But I want us to go to Hebrews chapter 9. And I want us to read through. I'll make some comments as we go. And then to chapter 10. All of this to make some practical application out of the doctrinal truth that we've talked about today. And we'll close with more practical application. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that they may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. His blood, in contrast to the blood of goats and bulls, being more effective once and for all that we would have this eternal inheritance. Uh, redemption that is ours, the promised eternal inheritance because of the sacrifice of Jesus. He shed his blood, and he did it once and for all so that we could, etern- so that we could experience eternal mercy from God. Don't miss that. Let's go over to chapter 10. Turn back one more chapter in Hebrews, and now we're going to begin to see some practical application as we go from here and then to Romans 12 of this propitiation that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross and what it should mean to us. Don't miss this in this classic passage in Hebrews 10. I want to begin reading in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great 
priest over the house of God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up on meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Here is the shed blood of Jesus that accomplished the exhaustion of the wrath of God for us on the cross. And it is to be a unifying and motivating factor in our life together. It is an invitation, of course, for us to draw near to God. That's what verse 22 of our text is talking about, making sure that we come with pure hearts, that we are fully assured of our faith, fully assured of our belief system, gathering together, considering how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. I want us to just bring this home to our experience right now. We gather pretty regularly, several times a week. We'll, we'll gather three times today as a, as a church family. We will gather again on Wednesday. Many of you throughout this week are going to gather in your life groups, and you're going to connect with one another, and you're going to encourage one another and do life together. But I want us to consider the value of gathering, and I want us to see that what defines the value of gathering is found in this great truth that we're talking about today. All of this is meaningful. All of this is purposeful. And all of the gathering that we do should be done in a way that honors the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And nothing about that should ever dishonor the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Because it is because of his sacrifice and his shed blood that satisfy God's wrath against our sin and gives us access to the Father that we can even gather with any meaning at all. And if we didn't have this, we shouldn't even gather. It would make no sense for us to come together in a spiritual sense at all. And so when we come, I want, I want to call us all every time we gather. It could be a Sunday school class. It could be a worship gathering here, a life group gathering, a Wednesday night student ministries gathering, a Friday student ministries gathering. doesn't matter. Let's make sure that we are doing it with the remembrance that it's precious, that we should do it every time we possibly can, and that we should do it with a purpose that reflects and honors the sacrifice of Jesus who paid for the sins of the world on the cross. We should never come just kind of casually without giving that thought. We should always come with a sincere heart, a pure heart, having done preparation before we gather, that we would confess our sins and make sure that we are clean with God, that we would come to spur one another on to love and good works. Sadly, this is becoming more and more countercultural in the church I'm talking about church culture. The view of church today is pretty low. It's pretty low. If you were to survey people that go to church regularly, you you would find this out. It's reflected in many studies and surveys. The view of church today for a lot of people who gather this morning 
is really based on what they can get out of the experience. That's why they go to the church they go to. Well, they got the best children's programs. That's why I'm going to go there. They've got the greatest music. That's why, in fact, the music is exactly what I like. That's why I'm going to go there. You find very little being talked about that's really substantive. And I'm not saying that worship isn't substantive or that children's ministry and student ministries are not substantive. My point is we are seeing a consumerism in the church like never before based on what we can get or take away from the experience and not what we bring to the experience by the grace of God to worship God, to spur one another on to love and good works with other believers and to cooperate in that process together and make sure that is what we value and that is what we treasure, not a selfish view of doing church, consumerism as we call it. You see, when we fix ourselves to this, that Jesus died on the cross for my sin, and that because of that, he wants me to gather with other blood-bought people for the purpose of spurring them on to love and good works and to take full advantage of every opportunity that I have to do that with the proper focus and the proper purpose, then he's glorified, and he's glorified above all. So as we gather, let's never forget this. Let this define us and motivate us in our gathering. Now, finally, the final point of application, I want us to go to Romans chapter 12. I want us to go to Romans chapter 12, and I want us to see here that as a result of Jesus exhausting God's unmitigated wrath, believers may enjoy God's mercy. This is absolutely critical because it is on God's mercies that the believer should build his life. We'll look at Romans 12 in a moment. Let me share with you these thoughts. First of all, Christian living has roots. It has foundations. It has causes and grounds and reasons, okay? We come together because of the foundation that we have in our faith and the roots that we have in substantive things, not what we want, not what our preferences are, not what our desires are. The roots, the foundations, the causes, and the grounds, and the reasons for Christianity far supersede anything that I have or come up with or have ever experienced. They are rooted in Jesus. They are rooted in authentic Christianity. From him we understand and know how it is we're supposed to do Christianity and be Christians. Christianity has roots. You see, the whole point of Christianity is to glorify the mercy of God in Christ. We exist to display God's mercy. Parents or grandparents, whatever the case is this morning, aunts, uncles, anyone with influence over children, teach those children that the behavior and attitudes that you expect from them are built on something. Substantive. Why do we do what we do? Listen, no one here with kids under their influence should ever shy away from the why questions, even if the why questions are not asked with the right attitude. How many of us have been there? <laughs> the why question without the, 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 the right attitude, right? No, don't deal with the heart at some point. Don't ignore it, but answer the why questions, especially as it relates to what we believe and how we're supposed to live. Because Christianity has roots, it's built on something. You see, we're going to get to the root of the matter now. 
Once mercy is experienced, understood, and properly used as motivation, a powerful countercultural life emerges. So it's rooted in the mercy of God. And it's the mercy that we experience because of his sacrifice on the cross. We deserve wrath. We would never know God's mercy without the propitiation of Jesus and Jesus exhausting the wrath of God on the cross. Let me read through this passage. You need to go back. This is your homework assignment. You need to go back this week and look at Romans 12 and see how our countercultural life is supposed to spring out of the mercies of God that we experience because Jesus paid the price for our sin on the cross. And this life has a particular look. Let's see what it says in Scripture, and then we'll close today. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, and he spends several chapters preceding this talking about the mercies of God that we experience all because of Jesus. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Skip down to about verse 9. We have different gifts, and according to the grace that's been given to us, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervency serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the life that is motivated by the mercies of God. The mercies of God that were bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. And that is how we make the doctrinal truth of propitiation practical in our lives. I don't want you to leave here only better informed about propitiation. I want you to leave here with a sense of how it should change your life and with a commitment to follow through, to make decisions that will involve lasting change for you, for the good of others around you, and ultimately for the glory of our great God.
You see, a community of faith that understands this and gathers, seeing the times of gathering for the precious and valuable opportunities that they are, are going to be the ones who come together and make much of Jesus in a selfless way, recognizing and honoring every time they gather that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, the price that he paid to exhaust the unmitigated wrath of God against our sin. Don't forget this. This needs to motivate us. This needs to be a passion for us. And I encourage you and even challenge you with these words today. I'm just going to ask that we would be in an attitude of prayer with our heads bowed and eyes closed. You can remain seated at this time. But I wonder if there are any needs in our worship center today. If you would just say to me, Pastor Mark, I, I'm a believer, but I'm, I'm struggling in my journey with Jesus. And these words today brought home the great truth of Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. And I don't want to leave here today without this making an impact on me and without it resulting in lasting change. Would you just pray for me today? If that's your desire, just slip your hand up. I'll see it. I'll remember you in prayer. Yes, thank you. Thank you. We'll pause just a moment. Thank you. Anyone else? Pastor Mark, pray for me today. Father, as we pray for these who are desiring lasting change, we ask that you would be glorified in this change, that they would make the the decisions necessary, maybe the hard decisions that are necessary in order to bring about change. We know that there might be some radical decisions that have to be made, costly decisions that have to be made, hard decisions. But God, give grace where it's needed and help each one who has recognized the need for growth to be able to follow through and glorify you. God, help us as a faith community never to assemble again in the future without a remembrance of the cost, the cost of our sin, the cost that was paid so that we can experience your mercy, which draws us together and makes our gatherings meaningful. May these things captivate our minds and our hearts for your glory. In the strong and powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.